while they appear to have flatlined, they can still be revived. There's enough hope here for an appeal to wake up to strengthen the things that remain. This is, church is not totally dead. There's still a spark of life here. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a look at the church at Sardis, the fifth of seven churches Jesus addresses in our study in the book of Revelation. Each of these churches possesses unique issues, some good and some bad. And in the case of the church at Sardis, we'll see that although they had a reputation for being active and alive, in reality they were spiritually dead. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he reads from our passage beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3. The angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. I know your deeds. We've seen that already, haven't we? Jesus is walking amongst his churches. He is present here today. And if he were to walk up and down these aisles, what kind of deeds would he have observed that we've done this week or even this morning? Are they for his honor and glory or, the, for the, or they are to our shame or our own self-centeredness? I know your deeds. He knows his church. I know your deeds that you have a name, onima. It's a Greek word that means a label. You have a name, you have a, a label that you are alive. But appearances can be deceiving. You can have appearance without reality. When I was in college... I went with my dad to uh, London, and uh, we spent a little bit of time there, and he had a a meeting uh, in ophthalmology, and on one Sunday when he was in a meeting, I went to the Westminster Abbey. I wanted to see the place, and what reminded me of it is this week, I I found on my bookshelf a, a little souvenir I had bought from the church showing all the pictures and the outline and who's buried there and the artwork and so forth. And, and it was the church bulletin of that Sunday morning, August 22nd, 1976. And I wanted to see the church. Most of you know it. It's the place where Princess Diana was married. It's the place where kings and queens are installed. And when I arrived... I thought I had maybe missed the service because it was empty. Now, understand, this was once a great church. Men like John Knox, men like Richard Baxter preached in it to thousands of people on Sunday mornings. And I went in, I thought, maybe I got the time wrong. Maybe I'm late. The church just was virtually empty. But I could hear something way down in the front. So I kept walking and walking and got down to the front and then walked to the right and went down a little bit further. And there were these... uh, priests of sorts that were dressed up in their little suits and all these altar boys. And, um, and then there was congregants, all 12 of us. I mean, there was more people in the support group, the little choir boys and all the priests than there were actual congregants. And it was really sad. I mean, it was literally a dead church. And by the way, that is a typical Sunday in that place. How sad it is, how depraved Europe has become in ignoring the living God. Now, if you went to Sardis on a Sunday morning, 
it would be a little bit different. It would be filled. And you would think it was alive. You'd think this was a booming church. I mean, this church had a big name. This church had a good name. To put it in 21st century terms, if you went to the city of Sardis and you said, hey, I'm looking for a good church. Oh, I know the first church, first Sardis. That's where you want to go. It's a great church. They have a marvelous ministry there. They're a booming church. That's where you want to attend. Uh, They were enjoying the ordinances. They were hearing the Word of God taught. They were worshiping on the Lord's Day. They were going through all the motions. They had a name that they were alive. But they weren't. So their reputation was that they were alive. But secondly, their reality was that of being dead. The reality is they were not alive, Jesus taught. They were dead. Listen to what the chief shepherd says. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There was no vitality. They were not walking with him. They were content with mediocrity. Listen, it doesn't matter what the church growth expert says about your church. He may say, oh, you're doing everything right. Look at your crowds. It's alive. Doesn't matter what we think about the church. What matters is what the chief shepherd thinks about the church. They thought they were alive, but Jesus said they were dead. He didn't say they were ill. He didn't say they were in need of a remedy. He said they were dead. Now, they thought they were alive, but the fact is is that they were literally on the brink of death. And it's really sad to think that everyone thought it was great when Jesus thought otherwise. This organism that was once alive had just become an organization. They were going through all the little hoops that they jumped through every Sunday morning, but there was no real vitality. Now, what are the signs of death? Well, uh, biblically, of course, when the spirit departs the body, you're dead. And once you're dead, you don't come back to life. It's not when your heart stops. I read of a man this week The article kind of fascinated me. He was in Panera Bread earlier of last week and a regular customer there and he he went down on the floor and the waitress about screamed and she called someone and before you know it, in a matter of minutes, they had people there working on him and they worked on him for over 20 minutes. Most paramedics would have declared him dead, but for whatever reason, they just kept working on this guy. They said they did over 1,300 heart compressions. He was sore when he finally woke up because they'd beat his chest so hard. Poor guy. But listen, uh, a good physician, if he sees a spark of life, will do everything he can to bring that life back. And Jesus is the great physician, and he loves his churches. And so in this church, they had basically flatlined, but as we will see, not totally. There's still a spark of life there. Now, let me ask you a question. If God the Holy Spirit left your life today, now, I know if you're born again, that cannot happen because the Bible teaches we're sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. But if somehow God the Holy Spirit could vacate your life, would His absence change anything? What if God the Holy Spirit didn't work in this church and He left this church? Would it make a difference? 
Now, I'm not talking about some feeling that you should be looking for. There's a, a carnal emotionalism that the Bible speaks of. I'm not talking about some kind of fanaticism this morning, but God the Holy Spirit wants to be functioning in your life. He wants to be real to you. And when a church loses the presence of the Spirit and His touch, then that, that, that movement of God just becomes a monument. A bunch of people getting together. You know, we were away on vacation many years ago, and when we're away, we go to church. I hope you do. I hope you don't say, well, I'm on vacation. And I know pastors, they go on vacation, and they say, well, I'm, I'm not preaching today, so I'm just going to sleep in. Listen, it's the Lord's Day wherever you are, and you should gather with God's people. And so we kind of scoped it out, and I thought, well, this is definitely a gospel preaching church, and so we went to it. But it was obvious after we were in the service for about five minutes, it was a dead church. You know, you can tell a lot about a church just by the way they sing, because singing is an expression of the Spirit's fullness, and whether or not a Christian is filled with the Spirit is seen among other things when they sing. And, and when that's true corporately, where there's a lot of believers who don't really sing with fervor and passion and zeal, then you've got a church that's dead. I mean, it was dead, and the, the, the preaching was horrible. I mean, I endured it. I... I mean, by the time the service was over, I was just worn out. And so we went to a restaurant, and I mean, the restaurant was alive. They had all kind of music going, and people going to tables and singing. And I'm telling you, if that restaurant had given an invitation, I would have joined. I mean, it, it was more alive than the church I had just come out of. Well, Sardis was kind of a dead church. The people there remind me of Samson. Samson, through his disobedience, lost the power of the Spirit of God in his life. He was as weak as water, but he didn't know it until that occasion came upon him. When I was uh, first married, I was at my in-law's house, and as I was there, uh, a snake was in the front foyer, and my mother-in-law came unglued. Now, I've got the best relationship in the world with my mother-in-law. I love her to death. If you could, I couldn't ask for a better mother-in-law in the world. But this woman is absolutely frantic of snakes. And there was a snake there, and she started screaming, and she grabbed a hoe, and she handed it to me. So, I mean, I'm from the north, and we don't have snakes up north like we have them here in the south. I mean, occasionally you'll see one. And for us, any good snake is a dead snake. And I didn't know at this point in my life, I was 23 years old, whether it was a gardener snake or a rattlesnake. But to me, it needed to be dead. And so I started swinging with that hoe, and I was aiming all over. And I swung the hoe so many times, I broke the hoe in half. And my father-in-law came up, hearing all the commotion. He just picked up the broken hoe, and with one swipe, he took that head off. But the snake kept moving. It appeared to have life, but it was really dead. Now, it didn't do that for long. But there's a lot of churches like that. They're like the northern star. You know, I'm told the, the northern star is 323 million light years away. That the light we see at night took 323 million light years to get here. That's how vast the universe our great God has made and created. Now, it's possible that the northern light burned out. I don't think it has. But it's possible, and what you're seeing is something that appears to be alive, but in reality is dead. And there's a lot of churches like that. They've just burned out. 
and they have a brilliancy over their past, but the reality of the present is that they are dead. And so Jesus exposes their reputation for who they are. Second, beyond his exposing their reputation, I want you to see Sardis's reformation is essential to him. We learn something now about Sardis's reformation that is absolutely essential. And so Jesus gives them, and by extension us, two principles for genuine reformation in a church. First, reformation comes through remembering. And so notice his counsel as it begins in verse 2. Wake up! Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, Jesus loves this church, and so he speaks to the church directly, and it's their only hope for change, and really it's the only hope for any dead church. It's a word from God. It's a pastor of God who preaches the Word of God and the Spirit of God and begins to stir the hearts of the people. And so Jesus begins with these words, wake up, because they were spiritually asleep and therefore not effectively dead. Have you ever been to a dead church? You know, the people just kind of mumble out the hymns and there's no excitement, no spiritual vitality. I mean, they have a sign out front that says, welcome, but in small print it really says, do not disturb. And we're really not happy that you're here this morning. Listen, if you're a guest, we're really glad you're here this morning. Wake up! And then he gives five commands to this church. Now, it's interesting, this Greek word, wake up, has kind of a, a dual nuance to it. And sometimes a translator, when it takes a word out of Greek and puts it into the receptor language, if they're doing a word-for-word -word correspondence, they just pick one word. And so here in the New American Standard, it says, wake up. But the word that is used here actually also has the idea of not just wake up, but open your eyes. And so other English translations render the second nuance, like the New King James says, be watchful, be watchful. So the first command is to wake up. Great God, oh, it's literally a word, a compound word that means to chase sleep, to chase sleep. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, listen, chase away the sleep before you do anything else. Wake up, be watchful, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. So the first command tells us that while they appear to have flatlined, they can still be revived. There's enough hope here for an appeal to wake up to strengthen the things that remain. This is, church is not totally dead. There's still a spark of life here. And again, any good physician will go after it. Look at verse 2 again. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed... And the sight of my God, in referencing the Father. See that word completed? It's the word plerao. You know that word. I've quoted it to you before. Do not be drunk with wine, but be plerao, filled with the Spirit. It's the same identical word, just a different form. And so it's translated completed. It carries the idea of mature or full. And so Jesus is saying, listen, this church is doing a lot of things, but they're not full works in the sight of my Father. 
Maybe they were praying, but their prayers were an empty shell. They weren't getting any higher than the ceiling. They were half-hearted, not really believing prayers, coming, pleading the promises of God. Maybe they were worshiping, but they weren't worshiping in spirit and in truth. Maybe uh, they sang and it might have even sounded good, but it wasn't pleasing to the ears of the Lord because it didn't come from a spirit-filled heart. Maybe they were giving, but they were robbing God. It wasn't a full gift. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, you're just entertaining one another. The works that you are doing are not complete. They're not full in the eyes of my Father. So you need to wake up. Verse 3, he asked them to remember. Notice, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it. Literally, keep on remembering. In other words, do not forget what you have received. Do not forget the grace that saved you and wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Do not forget the forgiveness that lifted that burden of guilt and sin. Don't forget the gifts that He gave you to serve His people. Don't forget the strength that you need to sustain you and to empower you to live a godly life. Do not forget. Remember what you've received and keep That implies stewardship. Listen, someday by death or by rapture, everyone in the sound of my voice is going to meet the living God. And the first thing that happens to the church is we give an account to our stewardship before the marriage supper of the Lamb. Don't just remember, do it. Don't ever stop obeying the truth. Just keep going with the truth. And a good memory, not just of our past, in terms of the achievements we've accomplished. Paul says, I forget what lies behind and I press on to what lies ahead. But sometimes a good memory of what God has delivered us from has an incredible impact on our life. That's why the Lord Jesus gave us His supper that we will celebrate this Wednesday night. We are to remember Him. You have no idea how many times I will go into my prayer closet on Sunday morning And say, Lord Jesus, the ministry that you've given me is a miracle. That you would ever count me worthy to serve you is amazing to me. Thank you that you delivered me from my sin and you brought me into a ministry. We are to remember, and I hope you haven't taken the grace of Jesus for granted the forgiveness you first knew, the debt of sin that he lifted from your heart. I mean, what was the prodigal son? What, was, what brought about the change in his life? He remembered what it was like back in the father's house as he ate pods there in the pig pen. That's always the first step to getting back. The church that is slipping into a coma needs to remember And they need to remember why their past really mattered. But there's a second thing. Reformation comes not only through remembering, but also through repenting. Through repenting. Notice now, if you will, verse 3. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. The second word, the second command is repent. You know the word. It literally means to change your mind. It has little to do with feeling as much as it has to do with the will. Now, feelings may be involved. There's a godly sorrow, Paul writes, that leads to repentance, but ultimately means a change of the will. 
And so the fact that Jesus can command this church to repent tells me a lot. It tells me there's hope. It tells me that if you are here today and your heart is dead, seemingly, you have spiritually flatlined, there's still hope for you. You can repent. Now, remember, the seven churches that he addresses, I've noted for you already, you could take all the members of Community Bible Church, and each of us might fit into one church more than another. I guarantee you all seven churches are represented here this morning in these two services. And ideally, we will represent one of the better churches, two that are really worthy of representing But if you are here this morning, remember, he who has an ear, I hope everybody has an earlobe this morning, he who has an ear, that means not just corporately, but you individually, we need to hear. And if we're dead, truly dead, if we've lost our passion and zeal and vigor for Christ, we can repent. This is really a a great word of admonition. And some of us need to say, Lord, I, my affections have changed. You used to be at the center of everything I did. I spoke with you. I walked with you. I talked with you. You were everything to me. And now things have overtaken my life. You know, we have people who cannot come here for two hours and turn off their cell phone. See, I see it from this perspective. I see it from here. I see people checking their phone and looking at their email And they can't for two hours just close out some things. In the last service, someone's cell phone went off. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. My son sent me this video of this pastor where this cell phone went off in church and he was speaking on love, love one another. And he walks up to the lady and he takes the cell phone and he slams it on the ground and he goes back to the pulpit. Therefore, God says, love one another. I thought, <laughs> this can't, you can go online, you can watch it. I called the church for the fun of it, and I spoke to the church secretary. She said, actually, that was fixed, but we've had more people call and scream and yell at us, but that was fixed, and he used not a real cell phone, but Legos and so forth. It, it, it was interesting. Anyway, I'm getting off here. On a, but, but some of us need to say, Lord, my heart's become cold. It's become indifferent. I, I, I serve you. I may be at the station every Sunday, but it's not a full service like it should be. And so when that happens, we lose our ability. And so the church in Sardis had become like old carnal Lot. You remember Lot? Lot was a saved man. You read the Genesis account and sometimes you think he was saved. We know he was saved because God gives us divine commentary on Lot's life. Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man, a dikaios man, a declared righteous man. In fact, he displays aspects of faith. When, when God calls Abraham to go to the place he's going to show him, Lot chose to follow. Where are we going, Abraham? God hasn't told us. He told us just to go. You coming? I'm coming, Uncle Abraham. I'm going. And he walked over 1,100 miles with his uncle. And of course, he, he goes in faith, and he comes to that city called Sodom, and initially, he chooses to live near Sodom. But before long, the Bible says he, he set his tent towards Sodom, and when you come to the end of Lot's life, he's a leader in the gates of Sodom. And God, of course, brings judgment on the city. Sometimes God does something only once to say forever how he feels about a particular sin. And if 
You wonder how God feels about the sin of sodomy. Just read Genesis 19. So the angels of God come, and listen to this verse. They say to Lot, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But old carnal Lot doesn't have a deep respect for spiritual authority. And those, these are God's messengers, we're told in Genesis 19:18. But Lot said to them, to the angels, Oh, oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. And so Lot begins to doubt God's direction through the angels, through the plan of escape. And God is so gracious and long-suffering, he puts up with all this garbage. But of course, Lot goes to warn his family. And Lot tries to warn his sons-in-law of the disaster that is about to happen. Listen to this verse. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Lot is pleading, get up, God's going to bring destruction. Get up, God's going to ruin the place. And they started laughing. They thought he was joking. Why? Because Lot had lost his passion and his vigor for the Lord, and he lost, therefore, his spiritual authority to lead his own family. And there are men here, heads of home, single moms, where you've allowed the internet and certain television shows and certain kinds of music that you listen to to just kind of ooze into your life and to take over, and you have no real spiritual authority. And when there comes a time in your life when you try to exercise it before your children, they really won't listen. And so here's the Lord Jesus, because this is what the church at Sardis is like. They have no real influence. It's like a satanic Novocaine had just come over the church and virtually flatlined them. And he says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come. Now, the picture of the Lord's coming as a thief carries the idea of imminency and of judgment, both in relation to the second coming of Christ and to the rapture of the church. But this is not a reference to the return of Jesus from heaven. Remember, this is a proverbial statement. This is a warning to these people who are saved that he will come like a thief unexpectedly and he will deal with them on a level of discipline that they may not like. We've already seen that in some of these seven letters. Remember, Jesus warned the church in Ephesus who had left their first love to remember. And if they did not remember and repent, he would remove their lampstand, their testimony as a church. Likewise, Jesus warned the church at Pergamum or Pergamos of war that he would make with the sword that would come from his mouth, that he would come and discipline them according to the dictates of his word. And even here in Sardis, he's uttering them a warning, a, a warning that they can appreciate because on six occasions in their history, the armies came like a thief in the night when they thought they were secure, and suddenly Jesus will come. And he will deal with them accordingly if they do not repent. When the members of the church at Sardis were newly saved, they were on fire for the Lord. 
but at the time of the writing of the Revelation, they had gone cold. But as we'll see tomorrow, there was still hope for this church in Asia Minor. To listen again to today's message, Appearance Without Reality, a look at the church at Sardis, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV8. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the Church at Sardis. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.